It's hard to be courageous without self-awareness. Otherwise, you become reckless. Because you could display a level of courage, make courageous decisions. But if again, if you're not externally open, you're not willing to receive feedback, you're not as self-aware as you otherwise could be. So you can make a courageous decision that would be entirely reckless. Right. And I think those two go hand in hand. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome once again to the Ed Epley Show, your opportunity to learn from the experts about ways to run a more successful and sustainable business. Today's topic is being courageous and self-awareness. And I could think of no one better to help us explore those two areas for um, effective management and leadership than the gentleman we're going to have on with this, Rick Packer. He's from the Table Group. He's an expert in these areas, and he's a good friend, and he's been a, a mentor to me. And I would also say at times we've switched roles. But Rick, thanks for joining me again. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Yeah, it's great to be here, Ed. And let's just set the record straight. You've been the mentor over these last 25 years, not the other way around. Uh, I, I feel <laughs> like roles have reversed, my friend. Let's get on with the the topics at hand. Just remind the audience very quickly what's the work you're currently doing. So what's your, what's your normal week and, and month look like? Yeah, so uh, I'm a consultant and uh, I work with executive teams. I typically have about five or six clients at a given time and go deep with those executive teams on all things that we call organizational health. I'm a principal consultant at the Table Group, and this is uh, my 17th year uh, in this role, and I couldn't be happier with it. Just great teams, great clients, great community at the Table Group. It's really good work. I love it. And some of the clients you work with or have worked with include... Well, I mean, here in Atlanta, a lot of the big brands, so Chick-fil-A and Coca-Cola and Home Depot, the CDC, up there where you are, Ed, Cardinal Health, uh, Ohio Health, some construction companies, some manufacturer companies. So across the board, and I work with a lot of medium to big size companies, but also spend time with uh, some small organizations as well. And I, okay. I just love the variety of the organizations I work with. All right. The first topic is self-awareness. And for definition or context sake, the way way I'm positioning that is how well do I know my own strengths and weaknesses? So where does self-awareness fit into the hierarchy of importance for someone being effective as a manager and leader in today's world for you, Rick? Well, I, the way that I look at it is um, you have to be open, right? If, if you're not open, then you're not really self-aware. And without that, how can you improve? How can you get better? Because if you're not growing yourself, how are you growing your organization? So, I mean, I put it pretty high up there on the hierarchy. And in fact, a lot of the leaders that I end up work with, working with um, that, that don't have self-awareness, that's one of the reasons why we're called in to help with that organization, because uh, the leader or the leadership team is struggling relative to the dynamics that present itself and that around the executive table. So it's pretty high up there in, in terms of, having to be self-aware. And I think one of the best things to do that is you have to be externally open. Are the majority of the engagements in which you get invited in because the CEO, the owner, the president is self-aware enough to recognize that they need help? Or is that being 
asked of them by either their organizational development person, their chief people yeah. officer, or someone else around the table? It really is a mixed bag, and it's both of the ones that you just mentioned. The CEO is the one that's reaching out, or is the head of HR or org development that sees the need on the executive team um, for us to come in and work with. And, and of course, when the CEO is the person who is asking us to come in, it's uh, the process starts a little bit quicker with a lot more gusto. Um, when it's somebody else bringing us in, of course, then we have to have the conversation with the CEO to make sure that they are on board with going down this process of becoming healthier. And of course, are they willing to be open to increase their overall self-awareness? Because what I know about the work that that I do, and I know the work that you do, Ed, is if the leader of the team, uh, and in a lot of the cases, CEOs, um, if they don't want to do this work, and if, they, if they're not externally open to feedback and others, um, this process does not work. It's really an uphill battle. It's fairly frustrating for all parties, wouldn't you say, Rick? It's 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 frustrating for the CEO. It's also frustrating for the people around the table who see little to no progress. And I know as a facilitator, it's very frustrating to know that you're you're pushing the rope up the hill, so to speak. Yeah, because if the leader and the CEO and anybody does not have self awareness, um, it is frustrating. Imagine a team of eight executives. And they all are aware that the leader is not self-aware. That's a painful existence. <laughs> <laughs> the emperor has no clothes. That's kind of the scenario you're yeah. operating in. Yeah, precisely. If I had 10 CEOs in a room, what number of them would probably have high levels of self-awareness based upon about your half. experience? About half. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, about half. I think that's about right. Um, the members of their teams, I believe, are more self-aware than the CEOs are or the leaders that I work with. That just seems to be my gut feel. If I just think about, oh, a half dozen teams that I'm actively engaged with or just clients over the years. Um, so yeah, that sounds about right. That's an interesting thought. So do you think it's a collective self-awareness of the team? Or is it, in other words, does the the, the fact that they're a group uh, force them to be more self-aware than the, the individual CEO would be? I'm, I'm just curious if that's... yeah something about the power of more than one person being around the table. Yeah, because the members of that team, they coalesce, right? I mean, yeah. they're, they're talking, they're engaging, they have shared frustrations, they have shared excitements and opportunities, and they seem to have more frequent conversations without the leader, and they understand what's going on, I think, in the business and perhaps have a really good pulse. And the leaders left out a lot of those conversations, especially if they're not self-aware and they're not externally open, um, then they're certainly left out of those conversations. And Ed, you, you, maybe you've heard me say this before, but there's a correlation between the higher you go in your career and the amount of truncated truth that you receive. So the CEO receives less truth than the executive team that reports to him or her. And then the people who report to that executive team uh, receive more truth. So it's just, it's a correlation. And I think that's just, it's, it's very hard and you have to work, you have to work hard against that to strip that dynamic away, which is some of the work that we do to build trust and relationships on those teams. But if you think about it, I mean, it's been said multiple times before, it can be lonely at the top, which is mm -hmm. a shame because mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be. Right. Right. No question about it. Do you think that most CEOs are hardwired to be more self-aware than others, or is it learned? Is that is that nature or nurture kind of a thing? That's a great question, Ed. I mean, my gut one says that it is both. Which one has a higher priority or which one do I see more often? That's hard to discern. I do see CEOs learn it and leaders learn it. And then others, of course, I think are just naturally that way and that gifted. 
but that's a hard one to distinguish. I think it's both. I, I would think that there is a high correlation to emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I think those are absolutely correlated. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know the statistics about that. But you got me thinking. That's that's always what I expect from you. Uh, where are you in your own journey of becoming more self-aware, Rick? I, I know Christy works hard at, at <laughs> getting you <laughs> to be more <laughs> self-aware. But in, in professionally, where, where do you think you are? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on, on the journey, Ed. I am on the journey, that's for sure. So it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, how, how can you talk about your own self-awareness? Because um, I think everybody would admit that they are self-aware, but uh, when you work with them or you observe their behavior, you obviously see that in other people, um, the fact that they may not have it. And I'm sure that's the case with me and you and others. But a couple of things stand out. One is, uh, as a practice within our consulting firm, you know, we're, we're, we're hyperactive about feedback. We're, we're just, we share feedback on a consistent basis to make sure that we're serving our clients well, because it's often that we work in pairs as consultants when we're working with our executive teams. And here's just a very recent example. One of my colleagues, uh, we were debriefing after some time with a client and she said to me, Rick, she said, Hey, I need to point something out to you that I observed in your behavior today. And she said, did you realize you interrupted several people on the team multiple times throughout the day? And I'm like, no, I, I think I remember doing it once or twice. But I mean, more than that. And she's like, yeah, it happened quite often. And I'm like, I, I feel horrible. So I need to have that self-awareness to continue to grow and get better within my craft. Hey, I think I told you about that like 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, it didn't take. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, ne I never missed an opportunity for a cheap shot. I'm sorry. I took you away from a point. Do you, remember, do you remember what it was going to be? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you can't miss that opportunity. But here's the dynamic that's at play. So what has to be persistent or has to exist within the relationship for that exchange to happen? Yeah. One is, I mean, we have to have a level of trust within that relationship. Am I externally open to that sort of feedback or do I get defensive? Do I put walls up? Yeah. Do I things do I say things like, how dare you? So we have to have that relationship with our colleagues on teams, with our bosses, with our peers, with our subordinates, so we can help each other become more self-aware mm -hmm. when we're open to that level of feedback and exchange. Yeah, and that's something that is not a switch that you turn on and then it's good. You can destroy that. You can turn the switch off. Even though it was on for a while, you can turn it off unintentionally. I've experienced in my own career yeah. uh, n with never having that as the intention, but behavior or words can make it more difficult for people to tell you what you need to hear. You know, it, it can, but here's something I'll add there, Ed. I'm guessing right now you could probably think of a handful of people that if they would call you up and give you some information, some feedback, some observations, you would listen to what they have to say, regardless of how long it's been since you've talked with them. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. other people would be the opposite, right? You may have had a conversation with them yesterday, but you're, the feedback and the information may go in one ear and out the other. It really, and that's why the quality of the relationship is so important, I think, for that you have with others to become more self-aware. Let's, uh, in the interest of time, and we might circle back to self-awareness before we're done, but in the interest of time and making sure that we give uh, the second topic, courage or being courageous, it's due. Let's, let's move on. Um, the definition I'm putting on that is the ability to move or act despite fear. And um, I, there's so many examples of executives 
you know, being slow to act, uh, being Mm -hmm. what you could argue too cautious when the options really didn't require it. So I'm curious about how common do you see the trait of being courageous in executives with whom you work? Not enough. That's for sure. Not enough. Um, And there are certainly courageous leaders that I work with and they are incredible and people respect them. They're like the old EF Hutton commercials, right? When they talk, people listen because they've earned that respect. They've earned that because you've seen them make incredibly hard, challenging, difficult, gut-wrenching decisions that a lot of people don't want to be in. Um, but the answer to your question, it's, it's not enough leaders who I think display that level of courage or courageousness w- within the seat that they're in. And let, let me just kind of expand upon that. I know you have perhaps some more questions, but one of the things I challenge all my leaders with CEOs, executive teams, other people in the organization is, um, you know, the role that you're in right now, uh, you're in it right now. There, there was somebody in that role before you. There'll be somebody in that role after you. While you're in that role, you have to do the best possible job and honor the organization that you're working with. And the challenge really here becomes we have to become subservient to our role. In other words, I may not want to. I don't have a preference to. But the role that I'm in requires me to do so. In other words, whether it's I have to become more self-aware or I have to become more courageous, I have to um, quit leading out of fear. And those may all be tendencies that hold me back and my leadership back. Mm-hmm. Uh, some would call that a leadership lib. But we have to look at the role that I am in, the role that you are in. What does it require regardless of what I prefer? Yeah, I think that's one of the major hurdles that I see of of people when they move into higher levels of responsibility. It really doesn't have to be even the C-suite. If I'm an individual contributor moving into a, you know, a team lead or a manager role, if I'm a yeah. manager moving to director and so on, every one of those moves inherent with that are going to be responsibilities that you didn't sign up for knowingly. You didn't, you didn't sign up for those yeah. things. And so when confronted with that, you know, like having to fire someone, and most people don't yeah. think about that until they have to do it. And that's a, uh, as you say, that requires becoming subservient to the role, recognizing that the duty foregoes any level of comfort that you have with doing your duty. And and so I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Do you think it's more important to be courageous or is it more important to be self-aware? It's hard to be courageous without self-awareness. Otherwise, you become reckless because you could display a level of courage, make courageous decisions. But if, again, if you're not externally open, you're not willing to receive feedback, you're not as self-aware as you otherwise could be, so you can make a courageous decision that would be entirely reckless. Right. And I think those two go hand in hand. But you would put the prioritization to become self-aware, and then you're more likely to be courageous in the right way, right time, for the right reasons, if that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I mean, think about all the different decisions that leaders have to make over the course of time. And people may associate a recent decision, a recent tough call that they had to make as being courageous, but they weren't externally open. They were not self-aware and they ended up making a pretty bad decision because they weren't open to other input from it. So they made a courageous decision that lacked a lot of insight, if you will. And that's why I'd prioritize the self-awareness piece over the the courage element. Do you see common scenarios where executives lack courage? Yeah. Sharing feedback with your people. Again, back to the point that I made uh, a moment ago, 
not being subservient to your role and basically um, engaging in your role in the way that you prefer, the way that's comfortable for you, uh, the way that you would define leadership, regardless if that's what the organization needs. I'm going to stop you there. Am I not acting because of fear or is that just lack of wanting to do the hard stuff? Well, it could be both. I mean, so... I'm guessing it's the lack of the hard stuff, but there's an element of fear in there as well. Okay. I mean, th- think about this. I mean, those two are deeply connected because if I'm not doing the hard stuff that is required in the role that I am currently occupying, there is some sort of fear that I have that's holding me back from engaging in that hard stuff. N- not always, but I think that those two are definitely correlated. And and for me, I go back to um, you know Patrick Lencioni's book, The Motive, and say, what's your motive for being a leader, right? Is it all about um, the rights that you get relative to the role that you're in yeah. of being a leader yeah. and all the perks and the benefits, or is it about the responsibility that you have to serve and lead others? And when you, when you look at the, your motive as being a leader through that particular lens, it causes you to question not just your ability and willingness to lead, but the way that you would engage in the role and why you're doing it to begin with. Yeah. I think I see there's a, common area that's uh, uh, people avoid doing things they should. And I think it's fear related. And I would put that in the area of dealing with destructive heroes. Mm. I think especially when that person has been there longer than you, you inherit the team. This person's producing great results, but they're violating, you know, the team norms or the values of the organization in some cases. And, you know, in pursuit of achieving your own results, you could be fearful of pulling the trigger on that, that, difficult person. I see that in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'd say, Ed, it comes back to fear of embarrassment, fear of rejection. There's a couple other fears as well. But to be specific in terms of the behavior that you would see on any leadership team is like just, uh, for whatever reason, avoiding the difficult conversations, right? Whether it's a team-based conversation or a one-on-one conversation with a peer or a direct report or even a boss sometimes, just for some reason, we shy away from those challenging and difficult conversations. And of course, in, in our work, what we what we realize is there's a lack of trust in the relationship, which is why we're not having those courageous conversations. Does being courageous always get rewarded? Is it always oh, no. a win? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, there's plenty, plenty of examples when a, a leader has made a difficult decision, the right decision, and it's not popular with the masses whatsoever. And as a leader, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why they would say it's lonely at the top. It's not because no one's following you. It's because the decision that you just made, which is what we always remember, the most recent decision our leaders made, it was hard. It was difficult. And you feel like you're on an island because it's not very popular, but you believe it's in the best interest of the organization, whether it's short term or perhaps even over the long term. Tell us a story of a time or two when you've had to challenge the CEO or president to be more courageous. Can, can you think of a, of a time yeah. where you felt like the need to say, you got to step up to this issue, whatever it was? Yeah, two come to mind. One is uh, more recent and the other has happened a few years ago. The more recent one, I had working with the leader and uh, her team. And after uh, we were doing some work with the team, the leader and I would debrief and we'd have a conversation and, and she would say, I'm so disappointed, Rick, in my team. And I would say, huh, it certainly didn't show itself when we were together. Why didn't you share that with the team? And they're like, oh, that would just like, it would break their heart if they hear me say that I'm disappointed in them. Well, are you disappointed? Yes, I was disappointed. Like, you have to share that with your team. And for some leaders, that's really hard to be able to say, 
to directly to your team. I'm disappointed in our progress. I'm disappointed in our launch. I'm disappointed in behavior or our rollout. But that's one of those things that we have to be able to communicate because if you hide that, it's always going to come out because uncommunicated expectations that you have for people always lead to resentment. And if I'm not communicating that to you and I'm holding that in, it's going to come out in the form of resentment. It's going to show up in the relationship. Now, I have to go back and caveat it with this. Something I've said, I think, multiple times so far, Ed, when you don't have trust in that relationship, sharing that can be dangerous and people are going to take it, interpret it in a different way than you're intending. And I certainly see that in a lot of cases. I have another example if you want that as well. Absolutely. um, Keep them coming. Yeah. So um, this is a a few years ago. I was working with the team and the CEO was giving me a lot of information about the very destructive behavior of the CFO. And um, so multiple conversations and over and over again, every conversation would turn to the destructive behavior of the CFO. And I finally said to the CEO, you know, you're enabling this behavior. And the CEO responded with, well, what do you mean? Does a CFO work for you? Yes. Did you hire the CFO? Yes. Have you told the CFO that their behavior is inappropriate? Oh, no, I haven't had that conversation with him yet. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So here's the case where the CEO was just talking to me as an external person, wanted me to come in and fix the entire team because here's what was going on. The entire team was being damaged by the behavior of this one particular individual, the CFO on the team. And they wanted to hire me to fix it. So an external person can't fix that issue. We can come in and help the team, help the leader accept the responsibility, and then we can show them right. the steps to do so. Right. But they're the ones that have to lean into that, and we kind of guide them through that process. It's hard, but the CEO was enabling the behavior, and it was one of the fears that we've talked about before, I think a lack of um, courage. What's the impact in most cases based upon what you've witnessed when that president, CEO, owner exhibits appropriately courage. What happens with at least the team that that person manages and leads? The word that comes out of everybody's mouth, whether it's audible or not, is finally. (laughs) That's what they're saying. That's what they're thinking. Finally, the person sees it the way that we've been seeing it for years. Finally, it sounds like they're going to address this and we can get after this because this is what's holding us back, whether it's on the entire team, whether it's for a particular project. I think people's initial response is relief and find that that doesn't mean it's easy because we have to enter the danger. We have to do the hard work. We have to go into the messy middle and the messy middle is where all the difficult conversations have to take place. And, but that's, there's no other way around it. We have to step right into it. And anytime that we avoid because of a lack of self-awareness or a lack of courageousness, and we try to avoid stepping right into the middle of the messiness, the issue is not going to be resolved in the way that it needs to be resolved. He's Rick Packer. He's a principal consultant with the Table Group. He's a good friend, and he's certainly a tremendous asset to organizations that he helps. Rick, what's the best way for people to reach out to you should they want to connect or talk more about being courageous and self-awareness? Well, uh, tablegroup.com is a great place. I'm one of the consultants on that website, but uh, just Google my name, Rick Packer. Usually I pop up pretty up in the searches. So I'm not big on, I don't have a lot of social media platforms, but uh, yeah, tablegroup.com is a great place to find me along with my consultants at the Table Group. Well, thank you once again for taking us down this uh, path of more clarity and awareness of uh, what it takes to be a great leader. We'll have you back soon. I have no doubt about it. Thank you, Rick. My pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.